presence of God transforms lives and heals hearts. Let's learn today truths on how we can access His presence and release heaven into our daily lives. Welcome to Manifest His Presence with your host, Dr. Candace Smithyman. Well, hello again. It's Pastor Adam, and uh, today I'm going to continue where I left off last time in Genesis chapter 3. And, and before I get to that, I want to do, I think it's very important to do a recap of where we are so far in Genesis. So the, the book begins with God taking the disorder and darkness and creating order, beauty, and goodness where life can flourish. God also makes these creatures in his image called humans, and they are to be reflections of God's character in this new world called earth. Now, God also gives the humans an assignment to rule his world and be his representatives, which means the humans are to be stewards of everything, to, in other words, to care for everything and, and make things prosperous. And a, and a key concept that is revealed right here from the very beginning is that the creator, God, he has blessed humans and God starts them off in a garden. Elohim, the God. Now, God gives the humans a choice as to how they are going to steward this new world. And, and, and up to this point, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. Remember, good is tov in the Hebrew and uh, evil is ra. So from this point going forward now, in Genesis 3, we're told God is giving the humans what you know, we've come to call the free will choice. And so the big question is, will the humans trust God's definition of good and evil? Or are they going to define good and evil for themselves? Well, as we discussed last time in Genesis chapter 3, a mysterious figure enters the story, the serpent, or in the Hebrew, the nakosh. And we're not told much, if anything, about the Nakash other than it's a creature and God created it. And what becomes clear very quickly is this creature is in rebellion against God and it wants to lead the humans into rebellion and their death. So the, this Nakash, the serpent, he interacts with the humans and he tells them a different story about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent, the, the Nakash, tells the humans that seizing the knowledge of good and evil will not bring death and that it's actually the way to life and becoming just like God. Oh, well, of course, the, the irony, and, and the irony is tragic because we, we know the humans, we know because of our, of our being able to read the word of God and the whole story is the humans were already like God because they were made to reflect God's image. <sighs> eh, boy, but instead of trusting God, the humans seize autonomy and they take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves. And just like that, everything spirals out of control immediately. The man and the woman, they don't trust each other and they hide their bodies from another. And then, and then next, the intimacy between God and the humans is lost as, as they run and hide from God. And, and so right after that, God's calling out to them and they answer and, 
what, they, what do they do? They start this game of blaming the other of who rebelled first. Now, this is where God declares to the serpent, to the Nakash, and then to the humans, the consequences of their actions. Big, another key point. There are, there are consequences for our actions, good or bad. So God hands out a curse for both parties. God first tells the serpent, the Nakash, that the Nakash is going to be destined for defeat and it will, it will slither around, along the dirt. It's going to be like what we call a snake now. And God promises that one day a seed or, or a, you know, from the woman or a descendant from the woman will deliver a lethal blow to the serpent's head. Now, this is incredible great news for the humans, but this victory over the Nakash, over the serpent, will come with great cost because the serpent will also deliver a lethal blow to the descendant's heel as, as it's being crushed by the, by the human. So, and these curses that were dished out from the event in the Garden of Eden bound the future of the humans together with the seed of the Nakash as well as those who oppose the rule of God in either the earthly or the spiritual realm. Now, this seed of the Nakash is the primary focus that we're going to look at today. And Okay, so we just heard, like, you know, from last time that the Messiah will come from the seed of the woman. Seed, the word seed in the Hebrew is the word zerah. And, you know, we know that this prophecy fulfilled, is fulfilled in the Gospels when we're introduced to Jesus Christ. He comes in this world by a woman, a virgin birth, through Mary. But it's also here in Genesis 3.15 that the serpent, the Nakash, and or uh, the Satan, if you will, is put on official notice. And I just want to say this. From now on in the Bible, the, the Satan is introduced. It's not talked, the, the, the Satan is not referred to much in the Old Testament. I think it's, if I, if I remember right, it's like 18 times or, I don't know, 13 times, something like that. A number like that is sticking in my head right now. But, but and, and we're not sure if, I guess the way to understand the serpent, the Nakash, or the Satan is that they represent Ra, evil. And so there's this, opposite of good. Remember Tov. So throughout the remainder of the Bible, the remainder of the narrative, the history, there's going to be this entity of evil, and it's going to be referred to as the Satan. And it's, so it's here in Genesis 3.15 that evil is put on official notice. Now, this in this story in, in Genesis 3.15, the, the serpent, the Nakash, knows a future Messiah is prophesied to defeat him. But he also knows that the Messiah will come from a human source, the physical seed of a woman, the actual Zerah, right? Zerah is the word Hebrew word for seed, will come from a woman and it will defeat evil. The same human term, term is used to describe both of the seeds of the woman and of the Nakash. See, if the Satan can derail God's plan to bring the Messiah into the world, then he could also prevent his own destruction by that very same Messiah. So after Genesis 3.15, folks, 
The Satan knows the integrity of this human seed, the Zera, is conditional for the Messiah's arrival. So the objective from that point onward for the Satan is to corrupt the genetics of humans in order to prevent this. Now, let that, what I just said, sink in. This is a huge point, a key point that we must filter through and remember throughout the remainder of the biblical narrative, that the objective of evil, of the serpent, Nakash, the Satan, Lucifer, is that they want to corrupt the genetics of humans. And if they can do this, their, from their process, for their processing, that would mean that the Messiah won't come. With, and, if, and if you don't process, if this is a new thing for you, hallelujah, but you've got to grasp this. If you don't grasp that, you're going to miss total understanding as we move forward throughout the narrative of the Bible. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes because it's always there. It's in every story. It's in everything from this point forward to the end of the Bible. Now, for instance, let's use that filter as we look into what happens at the beginning of Genesis 6. Genesis 6, starting with verse 1. Now it came to pass that men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All right. Now, now this is one of those passages in the Bible that many pastors, many ministers, many teachers, and frankly, many readers just don't want to deal with. There are, there are few Bible passages that raise as many questions as what we just read in those five verses beginning in Genesis 6. Questions come up like, right, 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 who are the sons of God? Are they divine? Are they human? Uh, who are these giants? In the Hebrew, this is the word Nephilim. How do these verses relate to the human evil described in verse 5? All right, so hang on, because this is what we're going to dig into. Here we go. I want to try and tie in the other, I hope you can like remember the last two messages that I gave that are on the podcast about the sons of God and, and the serpent, uh, the Nakash, right? It was kind of like titled, uh, there's a problem in the garden, right? And, and tie those into what we're going to hear today. See, these fallen sons of God, they have an agenda that was broadly directed against the humankind that God created. Remember when God created he creates all the animals, and they're the animal kinds, the different animal kinds, and then he creates the human kind. And so these spiritual sons of God are, are, I guess, jealous of these humans that God created to take care of the earth. So what did they do? They, the sexual mingling of the sons of God. Remember, there were the Benai Elohim with the daughters of men. These are just normal human women. 
This was an effective incursion into God's divine order of creation by these sons of God. Now, the details of Genesis chapter 6 underscore a couple of very important things. In Genesis 6, verse 12, we read that all flesh has been corrupted. In other words, it was not just the human seed, the human zera, that had become affected by this, the fallen sons of God's incursion into the earth and dealing with the daughters of men and having kids with them, having sex with them, procreating. But all of life on earth was corrupted. The Bible's crystal clear on this. There was little left of God's original order of things on the planet at that time. That was good. It was all raw. It was evil. And it's here that we're introduced to this man named Noah. And initially, it's not understood, but the underlying message is that Noah had remained genetically pure. He was found to be perfect in his generations, the Bible tells us in Genesis 6-9. Now, the word perfect in the Hebrew is tomim, and it's used here to describe physical wholesomeness without blemish, without spot, undefiled. This is the very same word used later on in the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy to describe an animal sacrifice without physical blemish or imperfections. It's used throughout the remainder of the Old Testament to mean without blemish, without spot, undefiled. Okay, so I can't emphasize this strong enough here, but please understand This is a physical assessment of Noah, not a spiritual assessment of Noah that Genesis 6-9 is presenting. Folks, in the details of Genesis 6, we find that, that the Satan's plan to genetically corrupt the humankind was masterfully executed. See, God's omniscience and omnipotence was not in question here, folks, but in human terms, the situation had become very dire. The Satan had made his moves and the Nephilim were now taking over the entire earth. So God makes a move, right? Enters what happens, the great worldwide flood. And I got to say this, those who have rationalized and painted God as becoming so keenly frustrated with man's sinful condition that in a harsh and unguarded moment, he chose to drown everyone like a bunch of rats is, folks, if that's your thinking, well, then you've... You have subordinated Almighty God to a status no better than the pagan gods of any heathen culture. It's it's not accurate. It's heretical, actually, and it makes no sense. And I want to help us all dismiss that forever from our thinking. Psalm 86, 15, for instance, says, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. There's many, many passages in Scripture that make it perfectly clear in the fact that the one true God, the Elohim, is not measured by the limitations of human understanding. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I just had to bring this up because there has been an argument that suggests God had a momentary lapse of reason way back at the time of the Great Flood. I've heard it from scholars and and believers and unbelievers, scientists, Okay, and if that's how you were taught or if that is how you have processed this whole thing back there in Genesis 6, I challenge you to process it through the filter of the scriptures you just heard. But, but the, the question remains, we still got to figure this out. So let's, let's continue this. 
So there must have been another motive for this flood to clean the earth of evil. And there was. See, Noah's Zerah, Noah's seed, remained genetically secure, unadulterated by the corrupt invasion of fallen sons of God's seed into the sphere of humanity. Folks, the flood was God's way of protecting Noah and his family and humanity. In other words, he was protecting the perfect seed of Noah as a human. God was protecting his creation called man in order to preserve the messianic promise of Genesis 3.15. In other words, the great flood was necessary for our salvation. In effect, it's like God rebooted mankind in a boat. Noah went into the ark with his wife, his sons, and the sons' wives. Eight, eight folks embarked on the world's first Mediterranean cruise and everyone else was left outside to tread water. Now, there were no survivors in the later group. Nobody was able to tread water. They all died. Genesis 7, verses 21 and 23 makes this abundantly clear. And it's here that things get quite interesting because the Bible also makes it clear that the Nephilim somehow survived the great flood, the giants. Yes, Genesis 6, 4 says so. And the questions that should arise are why would this happen and how did this happen? Well, I think the first question of why is easier to answer. The reason the giants returned is God had prophesied there would be an ongoing enmity, right? This battle between the two seeds of the two sources of seed, the two sources of Zerah from the man, I mean, from, from, from the seed of the woman and the seed of the Nakash, right? One was from the fallen sons of God and the other was from human origin. One battle between the two seeds had been settled by the great flood, but the larger war was still ongoing. The Satan was still desperate to prevent the Messiah's arrival, and this should not be hard for us to understand. The Messiah's arrival means the ultimate defeat of the Satan. But the Satan's not going to give up on his plans that easily. The Nephilim, right, the sons of God, having, uh, having babies with, with, the, with the women, had already been a pretty good hand for evil, for, for the Nakash, for the Satan, Right? So he's going to try that again, but this time he's going to be a little bit more strategic. It's the how question that's harder to answer. How did this happen? How did the Nephilim return after the great flood? Well, here it is. I believe the bad seed, the bad Zera of the sons of God somehow became a stowaway on the ark. So then how does one explain the idea that a bit of bad blood got on the boat? Well, Going back to Genesis 6, 9, we learn Noah was perfect in his generations. Now, the original language and the greater context of Scripture makes the case this was a statement about Noah's genetic or physical integrity. It does not mean Noah was a mistake-free person because we find out after the great flood that Noah makes some pretty bad decisions. He plants a vineyard, he makes the wine, and he gets drunk, which leads to another big problem. Genesis 9, verse 21. Now, I also believe that Noah's wife had uh, been remained genetically pure as well. In fact, we know this to be the case because Jesus descends through Shem, one of Noah's sons, recorded in Luke chapter 3, verse 36, which therefore implies that for Shem to be genetically pure in keeping with the prophetic messianic conditions of Genesis 3.15, that meant Noah's wife had to be genetically pure too which also implies that Noah's other two sons, Cham or Ham 
and Yepheth, or as Japheth, but it's pronounced Yepheth, were also genetically unaffected by the fallen sons of God's seed. There's Zerah. So what's going on is we're narrowing things down to one of the son's wives. Remember, there was eight people on the boat. Noah and his wife, their three sons, and the, the wives of the three sons. So one of the wives had the fallen sons of God's seed, or Zerah, hidden in her, in her DNA. And it's here that we need to take note of certain details in the scriptures quite carefully. Because it would seem, it would make a lot of sense to me, I hope you agree, but it would seem that Shem's line would be called out as the one to follow after the great flood. He's the son of Noah that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, descends from. So it would be reasonable to expect that Shem's lineage would get the attention and focus from this point forward going on in the Bible until Jesus arrives, right? I mean, that's what I'm suggesting. Because remember that Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, lists the entire lineage of Jesus going back to the beginning, and it includes Shem and Noah. But neither Shem nor Japheth get much genealogical, genealogical limelight in the scriptures after this time in Genesis. And I think that is because the scriptures want us to never forget about what God said regarding this enmity, this battle, this war, this fight that he first spoke of back in Genesis 3.15 between the seed of the human, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the Nakash. And from now on going forward, a major theme in the scripture never lets us forget about Ham's lineage. The Bible emphasized Ham's lineage way more than his two brothers, Shem and Japheth. Of Ham's four sons, for instance, there are demonstrated in the biblical narrative to produce Nephilim descendants. One of these three sons, right? One of those three sons, it is Canaan that the scriptures focus on the most. Huh. All said, we can reasonably conclude it was Ham's wife that carried a latent Nephilim gene. From the point Ham exits the ark in Genesis 9.18 to the point the Nephilim are once again mentioned by name after the flood in the book of Numbers in chapter 13, verses 31 through 33, it's the descendants of Ham that the Bible, that the scriptures trace very precisely. Specific individuals within that lineage and their activities are expanded on until we get to the report of the 10 of, remember the 12 spies that are sent out? Well, 10 of those that Moses sent out to scout out the promised land in Numbers 13, right? This report from the 10 spies mentions the giants, the sons of Anak. And by all accounts, they are fierce and an imposing lot. They're, they are traced back to Ham. And that's the whole point of the detailed lineage that is given back in Genesis. The ancient hostility between the two different seeds was still simmering under the surface of the biblical narrative, just waiting for the right occasion to express itself once again. A, a new battle, if you will, is being prepared. And with the arrival of the Israelites, led by Joshua, at the threshold of the promised land, it was about to erupt again. Oh, okay. So let's just, let's just take a breath. Let's summarize here a little. The Satan is doing all he can to assert his desires and to stave off his own inevitable destruction. The, that, these have been his motives since the, since the earliest times. And if we can accept this basic premise, then everything else falls into place rather nicely. 
See, Satan's first attack followed God's first prophecy concerning the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Satan's target was the genes of the humankind since Jesus Christ was prophesied to come through the seed of a woman, a virgin, okay? See, if the Satan could poison humanity completely, then he could prove God wrong. He could, in other words, prevent the Messiah's arrival, and he could position himself to be worshiped as God. That last objective was Satan's original desire before his own fall, which is mentioned in Isaiah 14, which we talked about last time. And this remains the Satan's obsession after the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as we know from the temptations of Jesus listed in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And this will continue to be the Satan's goal until the present chapter of human history winds down. He won't stop trying to defeat God even at the threshold of the new heaven and the new earth. But, but okay, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So <laughs> let's jump back to Genesis. And, and I hope we can see the strategy used by, by evil here. But now we shall see it become more, I guess, focused when God issues another prophecy, which also concerns the Messiah, Jesus, a few chapters down the road in Genesis. Remember today we started in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But now we're going to jump, leap forward, if you will, to Genesis chapter 12. It's in this part of in Genesis 12 that we find God sovereignly electing Abram and giving him the unconditional terms of what's called the Abrahamic covenant. And it's within these terms that we find the promise of Abraham's descendants through which all people on earth will be blessed. God further affirms this unconditional promise in Genesis chapter 15 with Abram. Here, Abram is not only reassured that the messianic lineage would continue through him, but a few verses later in Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21, God lists some of Ham's Nephilim descendants, which Abraham's offspring are going to be forced to overcome in order to gain the land that God's going to give them. I mean, this is just so cool to me because it's, it's laid out. Look at Genesis 15, starting with verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, these passages may seem as vague clue as clues on a cryptic treasure map, but the Satan got the message loud and clear. And it's at this point that the Satan was given some new and very important and helpful information, at least from his point of view. It's, at, it's the information that the Messiah would not only come through the humankind, right? He knew that from back in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, but that the Messiah would specifically come through the lineage of Abraham. So from the Satan's point of view, his target now gets a little smaller. It's more refined. The, in other words, like if you're a hunter, the Satan could now use a rifle instead of a shotgun. The, the rebellious sons of God's agenda shifted at this point from one that was focused broadly on the entire humankind to one that could now focus on part of it. What do I mean? It's the Hebrews. Messiah has to come through the Hebrews. The corrupt Corrupt sons of God, Zerah, zeroed in on God's chosen people. 
And in a tactical sense, the battle was concentrated in the land of Canaan and the surrounding territories. If the Satan could disrupt the terms and ramifications of the Abrahamic covenant, then maybe, from his point of view, he could prevent God's greater plan from achieving success. This is the reason why the Israelites faced the Nephilim in Numbers chapter 13 and multiple other scriptures throughout the Old Testament. These were the giants, the sons of Enoch, whose genealogies could be traced directly back to Ham. It's why the Israelites faced the gigantic King Og of Bashan in Numbers chapter 21 and Deuteronomy chapter 3. When after being so afraid of the Nephilim, the adversaries right in the promised land, God sends the Israelites back to the desert to wander in the wilderness once more so that generation dies off because they're too afraid. They had to wait 40 years till that generation died off so that the younger generation could be bold and courageous. It's why Moses, right, 40 years now after he's in the wilderness with them, right, the Israelite, he's bringing the Israelites once again to the borders of the promised land, prepared you know, to enter it. He's rallying the nation of Israel and reminding them that they're going to face giants. Moses lists the seven Nephilim nations, which he called larger and stronger than you. He's telling them, this is the deal. And he commands the Israelites to completely destroy them and to show them no mercy. It's no coincidence that God had mentioned those nations when he had reassured Abram of his covenant way back in Genesis 15. It's the same nations. The enmity between the Nephilim and Abram's descendants continued well past the conquest of Canaan. David kills Goliath, who had ridiculed the God of the armies of Israel. David and his men also killed four more giants who were related to Goliath in subsequent battles. It's recorded in 2 Samuel, verse 21. The whole premise that the Satan positioned his Nephilim troops in the promised land to resist the entry of the Israelites and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant explains why God ordered Joshua to wipe out all the inhabitants that were there. That's what Joshua said. It says in Joshua chapter 9, verse 24. It's why God directed Saul to attack and kill the Amalekites and to put to death every man, every woman, every child, every infant. That's recorded in 1 Samuel 15. The Amalekites were a subset of the descendants of Anak, and God got down to the nitty-gritty to specify that he wanted no remnant of the Nephilim heritage remaining. In the instruction Moses gave to the nation of Israel, and which Joshua and Saul received as well, God was cleansing the earth of the stain of the fallen sons of God's seed. The reality is Satan's actions and intentions in this sons of God storyline is right in front of us, and frankly, I hope it was made crystal clear to you now. Knowing the Messiah would come through the human race, the humankind, Satan first assaulted all of mankind. But when he learned that prophecy would be fulfilled in the lineage of the Jews, he focused directly on God's chosen people. His methods along the way stayed true to the original Genesis 3.15 prophecy that his seed, his Zerah, would be at enmity with whatever human Zerah Jesus Christ would come from. And so the Satan went from like a broad brush approach to a more specific one as he gained more and more information along the way. And it's why to this day, we still see the Jewish people hated and resented. It's an evil prejudice, which is a first cousin to the physical battle of the seeds. That, that ancient enmity, which was first prophesied in Genesis 3.15, remains alive and well, folks. Of course, we know 
that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came 2,000 years ago and crushed the head of the serpent. Hallelujah. Well, that concludes what I wanted to bring out today, and I hope it resonates with you. I hope it'll help you. And let's just go to the, to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this. Father, we hope and pray that it will resonate with us, Lord, and we will use this filter to have a greater understanding of your word. The, we thank you, Lord, as you showed us about good tove and evil Ra, and that this battle continues. And we, we thank you, Lord, for giving us this day so that we can turn to you and, and have your will be done here as it is in heaven. And we thank you, God, in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for joining Dr. Candice for today's podcast. For more resources and weekly prophetic words direct in your email box, go to our website at www.candicesmithyman.com, Facebook at Candice Smithyman, or Instagram at Candice Smithyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps the show reach more people and spread the gospel. Thank you.